You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Anti-Semitism, suicide, euthanasia, nuclear holocaust, and Donald Trump. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What? What? Mad Universe! And the prince did heed the word of Satan, and he summoned all of the wise men of that realm, and called upon them to give him counsel as to the ways in which the enemy might be destroyed, without bringing down the wrath upon his own kingdom. But most of the wise men said, Lord, it is not possible, for your enemies also have the sword which we have given you, and the fieriness of it is as of the flame of hell, and as the fury of the sun star from whence it was kindled. Then thou shalt make me another, which is yet seven times hotter than hell itself commanded the prince, whose arrogance had come to surpass that of Pharaoh. And the prince smote the cities of his enemies with the new fire, and for three days and nights did his great catapults and metal birds rain wrath upon them. Over each city a sun appeared, and was brighter than the sun of heaven, and immediately that city withered and melted as wax under the torch, and the people thereof did stop in the streets, and their skins smoked, and they became as faggots thrown on the coals. And when the fury of the sun had faded, the city was in flames, and a great thunder came out of the sky, like the great battering ram, Picadon, to crush it utterly. Poisonous fumes fell all over the land, and the land was aglow by night with the afterfire, and the curse of the afterfire, which caused a scurf on the skin, and made the hair to fall, and the blood to die in the veins. And a great stink went up from earth, even unto heaven. Like unto Sodom and Gomorrah was the earth, and the ruins thereof, ever in the land of that certain prince, for his enemies did not withhold their vengeance, sending fire in turn to engulf his cities as their own. And the Lord slew him together with Blackeneth, the betrayer, and there was pestilence in the earth, and madness was upon mankind, who stoned the wise together with the powerful, those who remained. But there was in that time a man whose name was Leibowitz, who, in his youth, like the holy Augustine, had loved the wisdom of the world more than the wisdom of God. But now, seeing that great knowledge, while good, had not saved the world, he turned in penance to the Lord. Walter M. Miller, Jr. was born in 1923. During World War II, he served as a tail gunner and participated in the bombing and destruction of a historic abbey at Monte Cassino, Italy, founded by St. Benedict, the oldest monastery in Europe. This event apparently had a traumatic effect on him, and it's generally felt that he had a form of PTSD before the condition was identified. 
Despite having been an atheist before the war, he converted to Catholicism in 1947. In the late 40s and 50s, he sold a number of speculative fiction stories to pulp magazines, including one called A Canticle for Leibowitz in 1955. Two sequel stories followed, and in writing the third one, Miller realized that he was actually writing a novel. He proceeded to write, rewrite the whole thing as a novel, published in 1959, which went on to win the Hugo and has become part of the canon, no pun intended, of science fiction. The story concerned a monastery in a new dark age, centuries after a nuclear war, whose monks were tasked with preserving scientific knowledge in the form of books, saved by a former electrical engineer, Isaac Edward Leibowitz, now canonized as a saint. Unfortunately, the monks no longer understood the meaning of the work they were preserving, but nevertheless, they preserved it anyway. Hi, and welcome to What Mad Universe. Uh, I'm Adam Prosser. This is the sh uh, with me as always is Philip Rice. Hello. And uh, we're honored again to have our special guest, uh, Andrew Hickey, calling in from the England. Hi there. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, today we're looking at uh, uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, which is a uh, pretty uh, foundational science fiction book. And uh, it's both uh, interesting from a religious perspective and interesting in that it's not, certainly not the first, but it certainly gives us a, a good view of uh, post-nuclear apocalyptic fiction, as opposed to post-apocalyptic fiction in general. Um, so we were going to uh, discuss both of those things as usual. I, people have literally written, um, you know, doctoral dissertations on this book. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of writing about this book out there. Uh, so I feel a little uh, underqualified personally <laughs> in some ways. That's part of, partly why Andrew's here. Uh, but um, we uh, hey, but we handled the uh, Nova trilogy. We can. Yeah, well, <laughs> did we, though? Did we handle it uh, that well? Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, but as always, so we're going to sort of look, try to look at a broader context and cultural and uh, context and, the, cult and the, the literary context for the book uh, and how it's affected pop culture and how pop culture affected it. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, we were talking uh, actually just before we were recording about, um, you know, uh, the Catholic, our various relationships with uh, Catholicism. Uh, Philip uh, is a uh, you know he he went to Catholic school so he has a bit more of an in than the other than the other uh, uh, the rest of us. Uh, but yeah, I was uh, I was raised nominally Christian, not really um, too strict on anything, and certainly not um, any kind of denomination. Mm -hmm. But uh, I got into an art school in uh, middle school in grade seven that was also a Catholic school, so I had to sort of convert to get in. Right, um, and um, so I spent middle school and high school in a Catholic school, an art Catholic school. So, you know, uh, as I was saying, a, a little more liberalized probably than most Catholic schools and even in the area, but uh, still a Catholic school. We, we, right. I went to mass and all that. So, yeah. So, well, that's what I'm saying. So you see, you have the experience of it, um, you know, and uh, so, but, but, but we are, you know, currently non-believers, but to poach a phrase, uh, we'll try not to be jerks about it. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, so, yeah, there. Of course, uh, when the nuclear bomb was uh, created in 1945, um, uh, there was there followed post-nuclear war uh, fiction. People began to fear the advent of a nuclear exchange, and um, this book specifically uh, was obviously tying itself into um, the fact that. Over the many, many years that have uh, passed of the of the history of Europe, uh, m the monasteries and the monks have been traditionally the preservers of knowledge. They've held on to 
uh, uh, they've held on to the great works of the past, like of the Roman Empire and the ancient Greeks. Uh, they were they were preserved in monasteries uh, up until such a time that they could be, uh, you know, resurrected supposedly during the Renaissance. Uh, and uh, this uh, this book effectively portrays that entire process in science fiction form. Um, now, um, so and and as at the same time, it's also a very Catholic book. Uh, it, the author, as I say, converted to Catholicism. And um, reading it, I, I had read it a while ago, but rereading it, um, you know, it does come off as very, uh, I guess I'm going to say conservative Catholic. Uh, you, you guys agree with me on that, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I think so, yes. Yeah. yeah it's, oh, well, it's, it's, in, some, in some ways, it, it, as we were saying before we started recording, it's, it's a book that's written pre-Vatican II, and so therefore it's before a lot of the reforms to things like the catechism and the mass and so on um and that's and that makes it seem conservative even where even where it isn't um but it's also it's not miller deconverted and reconverted to catholicism a number of times um and there's oh. there's a certain amount of um a sort of fatalistic cyclic uh, worldview to this which he, he he later experimented with various eastern religions and it seems to have as much to do with the cyclical uh, recreation of the world that you find you find in uh, hinduism and stuff as it does with anything that's in, in traditional catholicism but that said at the time he wrote it miller was supposedly a a, a Catholic, and this, like I said, this was pre-Vatican II, so there was a certain amount of, um, so it, it seems very conservative to readers from even a few years later. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, they delve quite specifically into sort of the, as it were, three big, you know, three big uh, forces of history, which is, you know, you've got the church, you've got the state, and you've got science and knowledge in more of a secular sense, which Part of the point is that, you know, at, at the beginning, it's the church that's maintaining knowledge and wisdom. And then uh, as we get into the second segment, um, you see specifically the divergence of secular wisdom and spec secular knowledge from the church. And I mean, Miller seems to come down pretty hard in both the later two segments on science detached from faith. Like it, it, there's a, I guess, a kind of a, Leonor a Galileo or Leonardo da Vinci type uh, who clashes with them. Uh, the monks in the second segment, and he's portrayed as, you know, he's 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 dunked on pretty much throughout the whole yeah. thing, um, and and then of course at the end, you know, it's it's the secular modern world which has become completely mad, and the you know they're not listening to the church anymore, and that's going to bring doom on their heads, uh, and uh, including a lengthy uh, back and forth argument about euthanasia, which um, yeah, that's yeah. sort of the the centerpiece of the third book which is you know honestly i don't usually get uh upset at the stuff we're reading but i did start to get a little upset at what miller seemed to be saying there assuming he was totally in agreement with uh the protagonist of that segment but he it there's no indication that he thinks the protagonist is wrong unfortunately and the protagonist is literally arguing and in his, to his credit he very strongly makes the argument of like yes this is a very hard decision to make but euthanasia is bad even when people are suffering because god says you can't do it essentially um he doesn't try to sugarcoat the argument i'll, I'll give him that <laughs> um he he portrays it as a horrific uh, situation uh, but he does. Uh, he does basically side with the idea of nope. You you go with the uh, the old fashioned 
the old knowledge of the church, basically. Yeah. The interesting thing about that section is that both the um, I, I, I'm thinking Archbishop, but it's not an Archbishop, it's some other form of... Um, but but both that character and the Doctor who is opposed to him, they both present the arguments properly. Um, I I disagree slightly where you say that there's no indication that Miller disagrees with the, uh, disagrees with the protagonist, because both sides are presented... I mean, the, the Doctor is presented as being honourable, as trying to find a way to do what he thinks is right while also trying trying to navigate the church and trying to navigate the law um and i i think i think it's as much as anything else miller working out for himself where he stands on that position and not coming down firmly on either side yes it's shown it's shown from the viewpoint of the um the churchman who is an abbot abbot the abbot that's yeah. that's correct yeah. abbot, abbot zerchi is his name that, that's 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 the one, yeah. Uh, so it's it's shown from it's shown from the perspective of the abbot, but it's not. It the doctor is not create is not a straw man in any way. He he's making making arguments based based in compassion and, ba- and based in uh, what I, what kindness. I, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. no no no. You're a hundred percent right. That was it, absolutely. It was basically it's as they say a steel man rather than a straw man. Yeah, they make him one hundred percent clearly a compassionate, honorable individual who wants the best for everyone and is understandably horrified by the the monks telling him no, you should let people uh, you should let people suffer. You know, not that we're celebrating that. And and I mean the monk makes it very clear we're not celebrating the suffering, but it's wrong to take a life even in this condition. And then he has a similar argument with a mother who's, you know, with her baby who's died. Like that is, that is really the focus of that whole segment. That's, that's yeah. very much the focus of like a sort of secular, it, it, it's, it's conflicting the values of secular humanism with uh, religious values of empathy and, and, and charity and so forth. Um, yeah. And you're right. No, no, it's, it's clearly, it's a much stronger argument than you'd get from a lot of people who would be tempted to, to very clearly side with one side or the other. I mean, the yeah, fact this that he- clearly wasn't written by an Ayn Rand type who, you know, has the uh, people who disagree with her be absolutely evil. No, right. absolutely yeah. not. Although it, it is funny, um, it is funny how similar the op- the opening premises to Ayn Rand's first novel, Anthem. Uh, both both of them based based around rediscover, rediscovering an ancient ancient civilization which is our civilization which ha, which has different views for, um, and you know redisc- rediscovering lost knowledge and that kind of thing. Um, hmm. there, there is there is definitely I there is definitely a sort of resonance there with some of Rand's stuff, even though um, Miller is by far the better writer and by far yes. the better human being, from what I can tell. Um, the interest. I was just going to say the interesting thing about what what you're saying there about it, in contrasting secular and religious views, though, is I and this probably says something about Miller's temperament. And this is a man who eventually, sadly, uh, died by suicide, um, and as you say, was probably suffering from PTSD. But for a convert, he at no point in the book does he present a positive argument for Catholicism. He over and again he has the religious people acting in a reactionary manner and in a negative manner, saying we don't like this thing. Never does he never does he really display what they do like, except a little bit in the first section where you've got the creating of of the um, illuminated manuscripts and so on. But in in 
throughout the throughout the rest of it, certainly at no point does he have does he have anybody. There's no sort of sense of the peace of God. There's no there's no sense of people being fulfilled by fulfilled by the their beliefs. There's there's no there's no there's he makes very hmm. clear what they're what they're against, but he doesn't make clear at all what they're for, really, or huh. preserving. Knowledge. Well, I I would argue that at the very end, when he when he gets uh he he gets the host from uh from uh the the mutant woman um that he says he has a glimpse of uh, a world without sin and that, like that's a sort of a transcendent moment. That is the the very yes. end, the climax yeah. of the of the book, I guess. But yeah, that's a there's a moment of sort of joy and transcendence, I'd say, in in the book. But you're right; it's very much about like the the church as a warning more than anything else yeah and i mean it's by by nature it's a grim book because it's set in the post-nuclear war uh, <laughs> yeah. uh venue essentially um uh yeah about that because we haven't really discussed that too much um uh it's interesting because it takes place in in three distinct time periods the first one being more similar to what we would picture like a mad max movie um yeah. where it's it's like a wasteland and there's pockets of civilization sort of starting to build up again but um and like little people breaking off into their own communities but uh there's still large sections that um where you'll, you'll get killed by some passing marauder or what have you um and then uh, it moves on into um um more of a feudal state and then finally into uh, a state that's more advanced than what we're living in right now and right. uh they go through, you know, they develop nuclear weapons again and have another nuclear war and screw everything up again. Right. Well, as Andrew was saying, it's it's very much about the cyclical... Like, it's, a, it's obviously, you know, uh, imitating uh, history as we've already lived it, Western European history, um, you know, with the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and modern times. And it's it's clearly, as Andrew said, that's it's evoking the cyclical nature of, oh, we keep mm -hmm. making the same mistakes over and over again, which is, again, he's portraying the, the church as something of a bulwark against that. It's the thing that's trying to keep us from flying headlong into making the same mistakes over and over again. And um, it, it's actually interesting because the, uh, the medieval, the first period, the first one, which is called Fiat Homo, uh, let there be man um, is um, is in some ways that's the most positive look at religion. As Andrew was saying, like it's it's a very it's got a bit of a, a negative view in the sense of this is here to prevent things, not to not to cause great things. Uh, but the um, you look at the first one and it is very much like. You, you get behind the monks. They are doing good work. They're nobly clinging to the... They're tending the flame of civilization during this dark period. And it is interesting because... And this is a consistent theme throughout the book. Uh, there's the theme of futility. It's sort yes. of like a Brother Francis, who's the protagonist uh, in the first book. He's, he's recreating a, uh, an illuminated manuscript based on an electrical diagram. Uh, he doesn't have any idea what it means. It's just a sacred artifact created by... Uh, their saint, Saint Leibowitz, who was a, a guy who smuggled uh, knowledge, who kept knowledge alive uh, after the nuclear war. Um, uh, yeah, there was a there was a period uh, after the war uh, called the uh, Great Simplification, where uh, people turned on the um, what they thought caused the war, which is smart people. Yeah. And you know, scientific and knowledge that's and so a bit, forth. That's a bit where I think it think it resonates very much with Ayn Rand because if you look at, if you look at Anthem, that basically has. As its origin story, pe people turned against all individuality, and they destroyed anything that w that was in any way sort of hmm. 
um, made 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 anybody seem better than anybody else, including the ve- the very idea of of uh, personal pronouns and so on. Um, but and yeah, sorry, carry on. I, was, I just I, I want to make clear that that was what I was oh, talking yeah, about no. earlier. Huh. Yeah, uh, good good point. Um, and uh, in the great simplification, um, people who were insulted by being called simpletons took that up as a badge of honor, and eventually the word simpleton uh, uh, became just a word for citizen. So right. pe- characters in the book call themselves, I'm a good simpleton. Right. That's actually really interesting. Um, that, like, I haven't read Anthem, um, and but I know, I mean, I know Rand in general, and, and that really does feel like he almost might have been responding to her or writers like her uh, in the sense of, well, we're talking about the same idea of potential, you know, fallibility of civilization and, yeah. and how we can lift it up again, but he sees it, he, he's viewing it through more... Uh, through a different lens, essentially, and he's saying, yeah, you can't just have a purely technocratic, purely technological, intellectual civilization because, you know, you're going to make the mistakes Thon Tadeo does, who's the the, the, yeah. the scientist who, who meets them in the second uh, the second uh, segment, because, the, you know, you, you have to look back at your past, which is something Rand was not particularly big on, from what yeah. I can see. She didn't really care about the... the, yeah. the she didn't even really care about things like art or, or, uh, or the development of history, Um yeah, but um, anyway, yeah, go on. the the other The other th- thing I'd compare this to actually, and the other thing I think he might be responding to, possibly subconsciously, is the Foundation trilogy, which again is based. I mean, uh, I, Asimov very clearly said he was doing the defi- decline and fall of the Galactic Empire, and he, mm-hmm. it, you have to. Uh, I, I presume you'd be both familiar with the Foundation trilogy. Um, yeah, we yeah, did a series. We did an episode ep- about it. Yeah. The first episode of the right. season was on that. Yeah. Right, I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't hear it, but uh, but that's again, it's based on it's based on the idea of taking the patterns of history and sticking it into the future. You've got the foundation uh, preserving the preserving the old, old knowledge hmm. through, throughout throughout the, the the decline of the Galactic Empire, um, but huh. and you've even got the 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 argument that's made in the first of the foundation books where the People think they're doing good work, but they're just copying down what other people have said, and they're not—they're uh, not creating anything themselves. Um, but of course, Asimov was an arch rationalist, um, very, um, very materialist, and the, the foundation, other other than the psychic stuff that was put in mostly to please John Campbell, is very much a secular, progress-oriented. Um, it, it, I mean, it's based it's based on Gibbon, and Gibbon, of course, was um, one of the great Enlightenment writers, um, and yeah, you know, one of the creators of the Whig view of history, where everything is an inevitable progress towards great greatness. You know, and I think you can read a Canticle for Leibowitz as being in dialogue with and opposed to um, the Foundation trilogy very easily. That's interesting, and that and and from what I understand, Miller did write some some uh, stories for Astounding, so he would have dealt yeah. with Campbell, and he would have been part of that milieu as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's actually, uh, th- I think this is this might be an example of where we're looking at that. Um, there was kind of a little uh, a stew that 
people kept simmering in, that a large group of people were all simmering in, uh, stirred by Campbell, as we've seen. I've started to read that book you recommended, uh, and yeah. the, <laughs> the Astounding. And yeah, it's clear that Campbell liked to take writers and sort of say, hey, write about this. And they yeah. have, you know, they talk about different ideas and ping pong them around between each other and even have possibly different writers write about the same subject and yeah. in response to each other. So I think that actually, I think you're probably right. It was probably um, a response. I, in fact, there's actually a moment I, I wanted to mention uh, where then Thon Tadeo, uh, again, he's the scientist, uh, the, 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 the Galileo figure, um, who's the, who's, who's trying to build uh, a new form of wisdom uh, out of his own, you know, genius, and he's he's a super genius. Uh, so he's bringing back things like the electrical light bulb, essentially. Uh, and then he discovers the monks have already had it for. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least they've had the the the, the foundational uh, knowledge for it for, of course, all this time. And he gets a little angry to see he's been upstaged by the past. Uh, but um, one at one point he discovers a fragment. And uh, he starts talking excitedly about how there's a new theory that maybe we are not the true humans who created the fire deluge, which is what they call the nuclear war. Uh, we, we're not the true same species that we might, they might have created a new species uh, yeah. and that, that and that they wipe themselves out and we're the new species uh and and the and people sort of go well what's your basis for this was, well i read it in a book here and the and the, the abbot points out no 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 this is a fictional work and it, it's entirely it's clearly a robot revolution kind of story and he may actually specifically be referring to rur which is yeah, another i, I assumed he was reading rur yes yes yeah, 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 and, yeah. and um, yeah, exactly. So it's got the same sort of oh, what if new people come along to replace the other? And in addition to sort of mocking, and I, I'm, I'm totally with Miller on this, mocking the kind of people who hear a new idea and ru go run, a, run to daylight with it without you know <laughs> stopping yeah. to consider it just because it is new. Uh, he may also have been a that might have been a, a, a tweak at uh, science fiction writers actually. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think that might have been his intention. Um, although it's also worth noting that that is echoed somewhat in the final, uh, the ending, uh, where you know there's a there's a mutant woman who's born at implied without original sin, who's an immaculately conceived, yeah. w which is to say, in the classic Catholic term, someone conceived without original sin. So in a weird way, he is kind of nodding to that by the end of the novel as well, yeah. right? Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm glad you saw RUR. I, I, I thought the same thing. I'm like, boy, this now that I've read RUR, this sounds a lot like RUR, the way he's describing. Um, as we said in, in that book, it was it was literally a new species of humanity, not literal robots as we know them today that were yeah. created. Um, speaking of transitions, uh, I think it's time to break for a word from our sponsors. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. There are a lot of podcasts with comic book reviews and interviews with some of the greatest creators in the industry, but only one will tell you scientifically what the worst comic book of all time is. And the best. We've been ranking comic book stories for six years. We have a list with over a thousand comics on it, and we're adding more every month. More Rocket Ajax on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Come on in. What can I get you? Sure, I've heard of Hair of the Dogcast. They're that podcast about video games and beer. From the latest gaming headlines to diving deep into the games of yesterday to sampling and reviewing craft beer from all over the world, Hair of the Dogcast is here for the gamer and beer lover in all of us. Available weekly on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Um, so I did also, okay, so now I, I, I'd actually like to talk about uh, nuclear war in fiction. Uh, because that's the other big uh, aspect of this book. Um, now, Andrew, I was wondering if you 
have any idea what the first post-nuclear war piece of fiction would be? I don't. I don't know what the first one would be. Um, the, I mean. Oddly, I mean, you 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 could argue that um, "Solution Unsatisfactory" by Robert Heinlein, which was actually uh, a written during World War Two before the bomb was developed, which which involves it involves nuclear destruction, but not uh, but not on the, a massive scale. It's not a post-apocalyptic thing. Um, it could other than that, I poss- when was on the beach? Uh, possibly we. Uh, it doesn't uh, mention nukes explicitly, and it's written in twenty one. But uh, it's supposed to. It's yeah. set two thousand years after a devastating war that supposedly destroyed the entire planet except for this one little area. Sure. I mean, apocalyptic wars and and yeah, apocalyptic yeah. events have been around ages ago. Uh, Mary Shelley wrote *The Last Man* in eighteen twenty six. Also, also often you know, arguably considered the first modern science fiction apocalypse novel, though, again, you can go uh, back to the story. Apparently it's not. Uh, apparently she was commenting on other ones that had already come out. Yeah, yeah well, I, if, I suspect uh, it uh, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting thing Jess Nevin's post on his Patreon, actually, a little while ago, which you, you should both read if you haven't. Uh, he's doing the histories of genres, and he starts science fiction the same place I would, with a 14th century book called The Book of the City of Ladies by Christine de Pizan. Um, and he... Trace it, traces it through from there. So yeah, Mary Shelley was definitely not the first science fiction. Um, but uh, I'd go with um, uh, True History, but I'm pretty yeah. broad in my yeah. Of course, you can go back to. I mean, the story yeah. of Noah is a post-apocalyptic story. But sorry, just a sec, uh, Andrew. The story you mentioned, the City of Ladies, is that the uh, Islamic story? No, no, no. It's it's um, a sort of allegorical novel about building building a city. Um, it, it's it's basically part allegory and part uh, feminist tract. It's a response to to a book which basically said that women are putrid and uh, the cause of all sin in the world. And this woman is saying, no, women are actually great. And this, it's sort of partly the, the stories of all uh, famous women from throughout history who've done good things. Um, and, and partly it, it's sort of an allegory about building a safe feminist place and various other things. It's a oh. Um, it's not 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 a particularly good or interesting read, but it but it's a sort of genre defining. Um, you could trace a line from it through to things like um, the Good Place, for example. Um, you could <laughs> you could see a, a definite link to that, or Joe Walton's books where she's um, recreating Plato's Republic in um, pre the, the time travel and things. Um, I can't remember, the, the Just City was the first one of hers. You can see you can see a real link between um, the Book of the City of Ladies and those things. Um, the, oh, okay. it, but it's 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 a utopia kind of thing rather than anything else. Right. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm pretty broad in my definition of science fiction, and I I count true history, which is from uh, the second yeah. century AD, which is involves like a war between the moon and the sun. Yeah, right. Like giant three-headed vultures and things. It's it's more fantasy probably by modern standards, but it's yeah, got mean, elements there. Where I do you think draw the line? Of course. Yeah, it's hard discussion. to <laughs> it's hard to say something is the first of a of an entire genre, especially something that broad. Right. And I've seen people say, you know. Such and such is the first horror, and like horror is a concept that's like intrinsic yeah. to human storytelling. You can't, right? You yeah, can't find the first of that. 
I, I think you could maybe make arguments for well, this is the modern or era of blah 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 because there's some yeah, but I, I think like post enlightenment um, or something like that to, to draw a line. I, that's all. Right. I'm saying. And I I hear what you're saying with horror, you could never <laughs> you can never yeah. do that. I think. Yeah. But science fiction, you could maybe say like because it's uh, because it's post enlightenment that makes it different. Um, than mm -hmm. if something that was written as more or less pure fantasy like the true history. But again, that's an endless discussion. You can never resolve that, obviously. Uh, but yeah. spe I, I'm talking sp but specifically about nuclear uh, nuclear I, war post-apocalypse. I, I would guess I would guess it's probably On the Beach, but I'm, I'm just going to ch double-check the date that On the Beach came out. Because on the Beach came out in 1957. Right. Now, um, I've actually looked this up in, or in advance. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also a book called Go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm just saying I can't think of anything before that. Well, there was a movie. I actually there's a, there was an excellent video by Jack Saint uh, just recently. Oh yeah, I, I the, was just rewatched that right before we were doing this. No. Yeah, it was about uh, apocalypses and 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 culture, and uh, it mentioned a movie called Five, which was 1951. Right. Uh, and it does it does portray uh, the you know a small group of survivors in the wake of a nuclear war. Uh, it seems to be the first post nuclear apocalypse movie. Um, as you say, I, 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 you know, as the, the nature of movies and fiction, I tend to think, oh, there must be a fictional story before that. And in fact, I wondered if Five was based on a story, but apparently not. So that's one way in which the movies might actually have beat um, uh, beat uh, prose to uh, a concept. I, I don't know if there were a lot of serious... I hadn't heard of that Heinlein book. That's actually very interesting. But after... Uh, I would date it to be after the first testing of the uh, atomic bomb to be a real <laughs> study yeah. of it, because before that it would have been purely theoretical. Um, so, of course, that was on everyone's mind in the late 40s and 50s, the idea of nuclear war and beyond. Uh, there was a book called uh, The Long Tomorrow by Lee Brackett in 1955. That's oh, someone right, else we've yes. done a show about. Yeah, what's that? Do you know what that's about, Andrew? No, I've I've heard I've heard of it, and yeah, I, I, but I, I don't know I don't know it. No, um, but yeah, that just I, I, it rang a bell when you said it. That's all. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. So I mean, maybe maybe uh, maybe lead bracket was a uh, was uh, here. I'll Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> it's set in the aftermath of a nuclear war. Portrays a world where scientific knowledge is feared and restricted. Oh, there you go again. Uh, it was, uh, Americans have come to blame technology for the disaster, and far from seeking to recover what was destroyed, are actively opposed to any such attempts. Wow! That sounds like it really, uh, yes. it, it really fed into what, uh, oh. what Miller was doing. Yeah. Uh, it just struck me, there's elements of, uh, nuclear war and post-apocalypse in, um, uh, The Last and First Men. Yes, that's uh, true, yes. Yes, yes, Stapleton, yes. Does yeah. he talk specifically about nuclear yeah. war? Yes, yes. Uh, nukes are explicitly mentioned. Yes, uh, I don't. Um, I don't think he can have done because that was from 1930. So, right. Yeah. Uh, no. 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 I no. Mean, uh, nukes are mentioned. They're they're not what causes the apocalypse, though. But they do. Uh, yeah, I think I think that, I launched. think that's that's one of those set, uh, big big. There have been uh, apocalyptic wars, but but not any. And he might have mentioned like nuclear weapons as as a thing, but I don't. I don't yeah. think. I don't think. I, yeah, there, there's explicitly a part where they they test the they test a bomb and use it once and then destroy the knowledge of it. And it's not <laughs> yes. rediscovered till the next phase of humanity. Um, right, yeah. and they, there is a there is a scene that very much echoes the kind of uh oh the the missiles are in the air 
that you get from nuclear war, except it wasn't specific in, in that scene. It wasn't specifically nuclear. Uh, it was just some horrible new weapon that they developed. Uh, so you can see that, uh, of, and again, my whole point here is that there's no firm, uh, yeah. firm thing you can point to as the first and the, the dividing line. But of course, the actual development of nuclear weapons would have <laughs> would have shifted uh, the yeah. mindset from from you know from, again from being purely theoretical. Um, no, though again, um, it was known about that it was possible before they. Of course, you know, yeah. It, so. I mean, I think um, Einstein was writing in what, like, he started publishing uh, his major papers in the nineteen World War One era. Oh no, even before that, that um, the uh, Einstein published three great papers in nineteen oh five, and then yeah, the general relativity I think was a bit later, but special relativity was nineteen nineteen oh five. So, um, and um, the, obviously they were, they were investigating radiation even before then, the Curies and so on. Um, but mm. yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, but nobody. There were lots of talk. There was lots of talk about how to harness the atom, and that 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 was the phrasing that was usually used. But there wasn't a specific understanding of what an um, an atomic explosion, or certainly a thermonuclear explosion, would be like. You know, they knew that they mm. knew that there were massive amounts of power that could be harnessed, but it wasn't talked about as a, as a bomb specifically until really World War Two. Mm, That's true. Okay. Uh, you you look at uh, say the superhero, the Atom, the original one from uh, the uh, '40s, Al Pratt, who was uh, he's called the Atom because he's short. Right. He's just a short guy who likes yeah. to beat people up. And then um, after the in real life, after the the bomb went off, he was reimagined as uh, he got like nuclear powers. So like you see that in one character how it shifted uh, because of the um, yeah. Of, yeah, of all the like, things that you'd see, you'd you would think uh, discovering nuclear power and seeing what the nuclear bomb could do would have a pretty big impact on yes. on world on pop culture and everything. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That even if they didn't know. Sorry, I'm just saying it certainly did. I mean, there was so there's so much stuff from from the fifties, particularly that um, deals with this. And he, um, the the other novel that uh, sort of this remind the Canticle for Leibowitz reminds me of a little bit is the Chrysalids by John Wyndham, with the sort of religious themes and the mutants and so on. Um, I think that came after a Canticle for Leibowitz, though. But I think they were sort of independent. But there was just um, everything seems seems to be dealing with nuclear stuff in one way or another throughout throughout the 50s i mean i've, I've just been um writing a little bit from an episode of my podcast i'm, I'm talking about the uh, rebel without a cause and you've got james dean in the cinema watching a, a, a thing about about nuclear nuclear war there it was just omnipresent mm. um everywhere uh, yeah. in, in the culture from from the moment of the first bombs and certainly from the time the time that uh, russia got it and uh, nuclear war became a real possibility Right. Oh, uh, you have uh, something in the notes here, Adam, about um, uh, yeah, well, war survival skills. Yeah, there was a there was a U.S. government handbook uh, in 1979, I believe, called Nuclear War Survival Skills. Although I don't think it was the first of its kind, uh, and uh, the author apparently singles out uh, on the beach specifically, uh, which is a book in which uh, the survivors of a nuclear war in Australia. Uh, see that the you know the radiation is coming towards them and they're all going to basically mankind is going to be completely wiped out. They've held off that you know they didn't get the worst of it, but now they're going to die of radiation poisoning. So it's about sort of you know what are you going to do when you know you only have a, a short time to live. And uh, the author of this Civil War handbook sort of said that was a very bad uh, that was that was a really bad uh, 
message to send because there were a lot of things you could do and that humanity would not be wiped out and that if you thought you were doomed to die you wouldn't take survival message methods uh seriously whereas there were a lot of things you could do uh more cynically you could argue that uh that mindset came from people wanting to destigmatize nuclear war a bit so that it wouldn't be off the table in a conflict um and apparently uh supposedly this may not be true uh but in a po possibly apocryphal story but that ronald reagan saw the movie adaptation of on the beach and uh it sort of guided his thinking towards nuclear weapons so that he wasn't uh, he wasn't quite as nuke, nuke happy as he could have been otherwise. Um, yeah, well, uh, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't on on the beach. I think it, there, there was. I always get there was there was a, I think it was called the day after or something like that. Uh, oh and, uh, yes, that's it. The day after. Yeah, You're right. Yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah, and yeah, Reagan was totally. His mind was totally controlled by films. Apparently, one of the first yeah, things. Yes. He, apparently, one of the first things he did when he went in, when he went into the White House for the first time and, and became president was asked to see the War Room, and they said they said there's no such thing. He said the one from Doctor Strangelove. He he was. <laughs> he, 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 he he also named his big program the Star Wars program. Yes. Yeah, 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 right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> that it gets a little scary when you think about. It. And then uh, our, the current resident of the of the the White House is probably influenced in similar ways, actually. Unfortunately, yes, by yes. by, by uh, what he's seen in time, her, yeah, yeah, TV and stuff, yeah, and in less positive ways. He he was literally yeah. just announcing, "Oh yeah, we've got a great big secret nuclear weapon nobody's heard of." Supposedly, <laughs> who knows if he if he knows what he's talking about when he says that, but that's not a comforting thought. Anyway, um, but but yeah, so it's it's it was definitely um, not the first uh, post-nuclear novel, Canical for Leibowitz, but it it um, it clearly had that um, that that reflect. I I, I want to say it's the first. Um, except on the beach is taken seriously from a literary point of view as well. Yes. So you know maybe it's the second one to take to sort of look at nuclear war. Apparently, even this book was not that well received when it came out. It was seen as oh, it's a quote science fiction novel. Um, yeah. So it didn't get it got middling reviews. But then you know people rediscovered it fairly quickly and 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 uh, saw it as a, a fairly significant uh, installment in in literature and it really has uh lasted like it was you know my school library had it even though you know it's from, not not that they didn't have lots of things but it was it seems to have really made a big mark in uh that particular genre and science fiction in general uh in a way that some other books perhaps didn't um i guess it's because as grim as it is, it's one of the more hopeful books about nuclear apocalypse. I think you'd say. <laughs> well, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you'd say uh, hopeful. Um, it, it posits a future <laughs> after nuclear apocalypse, which, of course, is you know um, a very much an open question. Um, but um, it, it it it's not. It doesn't read as hopeful to me. I mean, it's just it's just. The say, it's saying we're going to keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Um, right. But, um, which... Well, actually, okay, so that's an interesting point, uh, because I did read the ending as hopeful. And uh, you're right, of course, there's the... Like, the whole nature of the novel is cyclical. He's literally saying history repeating itself. Um, the fact that it ends with the idea that there's been an immaculate conception, um, and the fact that it ends with a, a change in the... Like the one thing that deviates from how things went last time is that the monks significantly have all piled into a, a rocket ship called uh, the the Peregrinator or the Quo Peregrinator Grex Pastor Secum, 
whither wanders the flock, the shepherd is with them, is the English translation. Um, so they're, they're very clearly established as a, uh, they're going off to minister to Alpha Centauri and establish a new uh, abbey of um, the St. Leibowitz, the, who is at this point the patron saint of, uh, uh, patron saint of uh, the maintenance of knowledge, basically. Um, <clears throat> and it, it shows that sort of, well, we're going to keep hope alive. We're going to keep the flame alive in various ways. It's obviously... You know, echoing what the monks have done all throughout uh, their existence in this book. Um, but if and, you want and to it, be really cynical about it, they're also going to cause a nuclear war on the other yeah, planets. Yeah, that's that's that was what I assumed the next thing is. Um, it's a shame that none of us, as far as I'm aware, have read the sequel because um, then yes. we, might, we might know if <laughs> if if that was well. The what's... sequel the the sequel is actually set uh, in the past. It does not. Oh right, past, okay. Uh, what happened? Yeah, oh, okay. it's set a, a, a little bit after the second segment. Um, and deals with some of the war, the fallout from the wars that are obviously gearing up in right. that segment, uh, in which uh, Texarkana, the state of Texarkana, takes over uh, the North American continent. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's 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 oh, not uh, actually that, it, and it wasn't even actually finished by Miller. It was started no, no, by yeah. him, but uh, Terry Bisson, uh, the the science fiction writer, uh, completed it apparently. Yeah. Um, so there's some argument over whether it's canonical. It's clearly it's sort of ephemeral it's not crucial to uh, continuing yeah. the idea but but uh, it has a lot about papal succession in that one apparently from <laughs> what i've read um that's kind of the actually that reminds me uh, andrew you were going to talk about uh, you thought this reflected the vatican ii era and some of the, the aspects of well just that just that this was written pre-vatican ii um and vatican ii made some very very big changes to uh, both Catholic ritual and Catholic belief. Uh, in particular, one thing that we haven't touched on about the book, which I think would have been different if Miller was a post-Vatican II Catholic, is the at least mild anti-Semitism of it. And one of the things that was removed in Vatican II was the line from the Catechism, Christ was killed by the wicked Jews. Um, and I... Th you, you, I mean, for a start, the whole premise of the book is based around a Jewish co convert to c Catholicism, Leibowitz, which is... Mm. A tad dicey in itself, and then you've got uh, the the only character who appears in all three parts that we haven't mentioned, the Wandering Jew, um, right? Who and that is a I, he's uh, he's portrayed in a positive light as a positive character, but the 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 idea of the Wandering Jew is, is a very very has its roots in very very anti-Semitic stuff, and right. You know, I mean the. Yeah, it's a little ambiguous in the book. I felt whether it was the same character. Well, I, I want to. I want to be uh, possibly the same character. Yes. Well, yeah. here's the thing: the Wandering Jew, traditionally, as I understand it, is a person named as Ahasuerus, who, as Christ was uh, hauling the cross to Calvary, uh, he stopped in a doorway for a moment, and the Jewish merchant, who was whose shop it was, told him, "Don't." stay don't you you can't i can't let you rest here go away and christ said i go but you will be here when i return yeah which in other words he cursed him with eternal life basically yeah um and that is the uh, traditional it's also related to a um part of the bible where jesus says uh the blessed there disciple. will be people here to yeah sorry uh, uh yeah but uh, yeah sorry i was just saying yeah the blessed disciple he, he says to um the writer of john's gospel he, he says um uh, uh, 
that, that you will ta you will tarry until I come. Um, and yeah, I was just agreeing with you, with your bit there. And yes, the, that figure is linked in with the Wandering Jew. Um, and um, and as Miller does, the link in Lazarus as well, because the idea was that if Christ had raised Lazarus, he was hardly going to let him die again. Um, right. And, and so the, there, there's also. Oh, sorry. So I was ahead, just going to say. Um, there's also a part of the. Uh, uh, Bible where Jesus says there will be people here alive when I return, yeah, and that right. stopped making sense uh, a few hundred years after. Right. You know, it was clear that the apocalypse hadn't happened yet, um, and so uh, they sort of created the um, the wandering Jew as a character for for that to make sense. Uh, right. For uh, so there's still somebody alive when Jesus returns in two thousand, right. three thousand years. You know. But um, as Andrew says, it is also very much rooted in anti-Semitism and the idea of so, just yes. the Jews are always hanging around. And here's the thing. In the book, so in the book, just to be clear, uh, in all three segments, this mysterious hermit keeps appearing and he's explicitly, or at least he says that, you know, I guess you could read it as coincidence and he's just a crazy guy when he starts describing that he is Lazarus, uh, because that's what he says. But he, there's this Jewish hermit who keeps popping up. And, um, and supposedly he's um, waiting Christ's return, of course. Um, I think Miller knew that the classic wandering Jew, like, I think the reason he made him Lazarus instead of Ahasuerus, or instead of one of the other figures, is that he knew it was an anti-Semitic stereotype, and he was trying to mitigate it a bit. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a movie called The Seventh Seal, starring Demi Moore from the mid-80s, uh, which uh, has a character who's an immortal character, and it's an apocalyptic story, and he but a, but a religious apocalyptic story. And the the villain is is an immortal character who wants to end the world uh, because he's sick of life and he wants to destroy the world. And it, I, I think the character was probably conceived of as the Wandering Jew. Again, they probably went, wait a minute, that's anti-Semitic. So they made him a, a Roman uh, centurion who had been lashing Christ, and it's the same basic uh, that, basic idea. That didn't stop DC Comics who made the, no, the Phantom Stranger's Stranger, yes. origin. Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> oh, now the uh, Judas and also the Wandering Jew. So, but I think that's... Miller, I think Miller only latched onto it because it's oh, it's an immortal character from the Bible. Uh, like I, I think I honestly think it's as simple as that. I mean, there's sure there's baked in anti-Semitism in you know 50s society and Catholicism and all that. So, of course, that that's a factor. I, I don't think Miller was putting that in, going, oh yeah, I'm anti-Semitic. And I, again, I think I feel like his he wanted to portray Leibowitz as heroic in a kind of maybe slightly blinkered way in the sense of, well, he converted to Christianity, so it's good, you know, yes, but yeah. at least that's not, you know, he's not angry at Jewish people, he's just trying to, eh, you know. I don't he, know, because, uh, like, um, Wagner, uh, his thing, he was he didn't believe in genocide, he believed in forced conversion. Yeah, uh, well, That doesn't make it that much better, I, I mean... True. Yeah. It's I, it's yeah. complicated. I, I don't detect. Uh, okay, okay, it's not. A, I guess it's not for me to detect anti-Semitism. And there are clearly uh, things you can point to. It's true. Yeah, and, and for example, I mean, the the wandering Jew character refers to himself as the whole Jewish nation, and he refer he, he seems to talk about himself as being all Jews, and that kind of that's. It, it's it, it's. I mean, it, it's not. It's not like he is explicitly going going out there and saying saying the worst possible anti-Semitic slurs and all this kind of stuff. But the, there's a sort of dodginess around it all, you know. It, it not well, you know, I think I think the reason he says, oh, I'm the, I maintain the Jewish nation, uh, is he's, it, it's a reflection of the theme of the book, which is just as the monks are maintaining the flame of civilization and the flame of the Catholic Church, he's maintaining uh, the Jewish faith. Like he's, I, I think that was, again, I, th I interpreted that as a positive thing. 
um, you know, because a lot of you know Jews would say the same thing that that you know you're supposed to remember and maintain, and that there's a, a clear parallel between that and and you know the Catholic Church. But uh, anyway, as you say, it's <laughs> it's a very complicated thing to uh, to suss yeah. out, unfortunately, and it probably would have been better to not have that character in there. It's true. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, yeah. I just wanted to brief on uh, the use of language in the book. Uh, it's um it's written in English, obviously, but it's um. It's explicit that English has not survived the apocalypse, uh, at least didn't survive very long. Um, the, the monks speak Latin, and um, the um, uh, Brother Francis at the beginning has uh, difficulty parsing English uh, use of, um, uh, oh, what's the grammatical phrase? Um, um, it, it, where you it, place it, the verb and noun in a sentence. Yeah, yeah, he, he, I, I can't remember the phrase, but he, but he is used to work, he is used to the position of words in sentences not mattering, which it doesn't in Latin. In Latin, it's the verb ending and what have you. Um, and he, he he doesn't understand how putting words differently can make something into a possessive or... The, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, he finds a fallout shelter, and he thinks it's a shelter for fallouts, which they've apologized <laughs> as a monster that helped destroy the world. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it holds five, and he thought... Wow, five fallouts could fit in there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's that's one thing we haven't mentioned really. It's a much funnier book than perhaps we've given it given it credit for. I mean, it it it, it reads to me very much as an example of Manipian satire, and it's full of like little comedy bits which are mostly to do which have always have an edge to them it's, it's all always like ah, look at these people who don't know this thing that we know um right and, uh, yeah, that's it, that's actually uh, i would say that is a standard thing in post-apocalyptic and especially post-nuclear apocalyptic satire uh and in fact it might actually have its origins in this book this that might be a first for this book uh the sort of mad max cargo cult thing of uh, people maintaining, you know, the history of the past, things like in Mad Max Three or in, you know, in Jack Kirby's Commandy, and where it's kind of a yeah. garbled uh, version of what came before, turned, uh, turned, uh, confused, and and and. Oh, um, made that into, also like, happens to a certain degree in uh, Last and First Man as well, though. Right. Well, yeah, of course, true. there's lots of that. All through. All th well, yeah, it's true. But but th in this sense, it's kind of like there. There's something about the idea of wandering the barbaric wasteland and then you come upon a Denny's, you know, like it's yeah. that, that has a sort of a satirical impact almost in spite of itself. You don't even have to do anything else. It just immediately sends a message of like, look at what happened to our civilization. You know, yeah. it, it's, it's that kind of thing, uh, which I find kind of interesting. One of the books we, we were almost going to talk about Ridley Walker, a 1980 book, uh, which is actually written in a specific form of language that might have uh, derived from the post-apocalypse. And the myths and legends are specifically linked to ideas and uh, images from that are sort of a garbled version of science and history as this, you know, character in a, in a, in a decrepit civilization might understand them. Like, it talks about a little man, Adam, who was split in half and and like yeah. he's a monster <laughs> like and it's clear what he's talking about as it were um and, and um, the the way the language is framed as well so yeah language is also a thing in um in, uh lord dunsany short story uh there's part of it like it's about the dreamlands and stuff but a character accidentally steps into the far future where london is like uh pastoral again right and um there's a character who speaks in it's obviously dialect of like cockney um but uh, the the main character can understand it, 
right. and thinks yeah. he's speaking another language that's evolved in the future, but it's clearly just Cockney. That's yeah, spelled that's, out in dialect. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I think Ridley Walker is the when it's that kind of garbled language thing. I think Ridley Walker is the thing most people are referencing, but Ridley Walker was probably inspired by this book itself. So I think you can trace the thread back to this book uh, in that kind of idea of you know the devolution of uh, of language, and it's a way of you know just more less cynically illustrating how language mutates and evolves, as it were. Um, yeah, uh, as we mentioned, that that did sort of. Uh occur in Last and First Man with um, God sure. becoming Gord Alpus because that's what was said when yeah. <laughs> the, the bomb went off. Indeed, yeah. you also had something similar in um, uh, Brave New World um, where you've got the, the, pe the people um, worshipping Ford. and um, Right. Yeah. Our Freud and our Ford. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a, it's a pun on our Lord. It's yes. our Ford. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although that's yeah, supposed to have been a, you know, a consistent civilization that evolved out of ours uh, as with no nuclear break, you know, yeah. as it were. Um, so it's, it's actually funnier <laughs> in that in a sense, but yeah. I've just, I've just, I've just realized 1984, that's post-nuclear, yes. that's a post-nuclear war story. Huh, that's actually an interesting point. Do they? Like, it is. Do, is. do they mention that? Yeah, it, 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 there, there is a war in the fifties. You, you have Winston Smith's memories of going into a, into a bomb shelter and so on. Um, okay, and that's that's what causes the realignment of, of the world into the three superpowers. Um, yeah, right. nineteen eighty four is a post is written in written in nineteen forty eight, published nineteen forty nine, post apocalyptic, um, post nuclear war story, um, with the language change stuff we're talking about as well. That's right, of course. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I, I have read that, obviously, but I, I don't remember that. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, he's. I think that's well. You're you're right. Like he doesn't. He he definitely doesn't explicitly say nuclear war in 1984, unless I'm forgetting something. But it's clearly that's what was on his mind. I think. I think yeah. you're right about that. Um, that because he he does show how there was so much turmoil. People don't even, of course, famously, they don't even remember what year it is, even though it's called 1984. Yeah. Uh, the, the protagonist just trying to remember what year it is, and he thinks I think it's 1984. Um, uh, so yeah, that's a good point. That's an interesting. That's also less about languages and a specific evolution, and more you know right. top-down forcing language uh, in order to control people. But yeah, yeah, similar things. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, good point. Well, here endeth the lesson. We have been Brother Adam Prosser and Brother Philip Rice, postulants to the monastery of Saint Mary Shelley. We were honored by a visit by wandering scholar and polymath Andrew Hickey. Once again, Andrew hosts the History of Rock Music and 500 Songs podcast at 500songs.com, 500 the number. Uh, it's one of the best podcasts out there. We highly recommend it. You might say it's divine. <laughs> uh, uh, we also give thanks to our producer, engineer, and organist, Andrew Alex Ross, for keeping our audio confession every two weeks, and to Jack Furick, who composed our heavenly chorale of a theme song. Uh, a reminder that if you'd care to make a tithe, we both have Patreons. Uh, the links are below, or if you're listening to all this via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and the like, you can check them out at NeverSleepsNetwork slash series slash what-mad-universe, or just go to Patreon and search Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2Ss. Subscribers get to listen to our show early, usually, although we kind of botched that this week. Forgive us, our oh lord. Uh, and also, access to our comics, illustrations, writings, and all our other memorabilia. Uh, you can find links on our website to our Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter feeds. 
But again, you can search for us there or at our Twitter feed of WMU Podcast. We'd love to hear from you with questions, comments, or suggestions or books to look at for this podcast. And in particular, if you like the show, please leave a review for us at iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. That's all for this week. God be with you, my children. Go forth and sin no more. Thank you.